Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. You're going to be glad you came here today. Because if you like Jesus and you love Jesus and you like Jesus being bragged on, this is what this message is all about. It's all about revealing the glorified Jesus. It's the beginning of the vision. So far, we've just talked about everything that happened and all the introductions. And now begins the vision that John sees from Jesus. And remember the very first message, we said that the first part of the revelation is the revealing of the glorified Christ. He was the suffering servant, but he comes now not as suffering servant. He comes as king of kings and lord of lords. And we have our first part of that vision in bragging on Jesus, that he's that glorified son of God. This is the beginning of the vision revealing the glorified Christ. Listen to what it says in verse number 10. He says, and I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. He said, write this in the book. And send it to the churches. Then look at verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like the white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burning or burnished bronze, when it had been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first, the last, the living, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of, the, of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you've seen, the things which are, the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The angels, messengers, or pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, whenever we look at this passage, we're going to look at, first of all, what John saw. Then we're going to hear, see what John, uh, what he he saw. Then he's going to find out what happened to him, what he did, and then we're going to find out what he felt, all right? What he saw, what he did, what he felt, and next week we'll talk about what he heard. What did he hear? The first thing we want to see is what he saw. It's there in the very first verse we read in verse 12. He said, when I turned around of this voice speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands, seven golden lampstands. Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago, the number seven is the 
complete number. It's the whole number. It, it means all. If you want to put it in your mind what it means, it means all. When you use the number seven, it is all. So when it's seven, he, he says, he sees the seven lampstands. He sees all the lampstands. And what are the lampstands? Well, we don't have to guess about that. The last verse we read in verse 20, he tells us what the lampstands are. The lampstands are his churches. They are his churches. And so when he says, this message is written to the seven churches, it means this message will be written to all the churches. But when it says that he turns and he sees these seven lampstands, he sees these lampstands which represent all of God's churches. They are not the light. They are the lampstands. So every church is a lampstand unto the Lord. A lampstand unto the Lord. Now remember that. We are a lampstand. When it says lampstands, it's not talking about the church universal. The church universal is everybody who's ever believed in Jesus. But when it's talking about lampstands, it's talking about the individual distinct locations of the church. There's a gathering of saints here. And there's a gathering of saints here. And he identifies those in this book. He talks about that there's one of Laodicea and there's one at Ephesus in name seven. And every one of them have some kind of name on it. But they are distinct because they are the gathering place of the saints and the children of God. The people of God. And so the first thing he sees are these seven lampstands representing all of the churches of God. What's the next thing he sees? The next thing he sees, he says there in verse number 12, And I saw seven lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, there was one like a son of man. There is one like a son of man. Who is this son of man? Well, he tells us who who the son of man is. The son of man is Jesus, right? It's Jesus. We saw that back in Daniel. He's the son of man. And when Jesus came, he introduced himself as the son of man. And therefore, when, when John sees him, he says, he looks like, he has an appearance like the son of man. Now, how would John know that? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, the Jesus that he had known. He walked with Jesus for three years. He was familiar with Jesus. Whenever you spend that much time with Jesus or some, that much time with anybody, don't you get to know them? Matter of fact, you can even recognize the way they walk. You ever notice somebody, the way they walk, and you can see them walk, and you say, well, I know who that is coming. I know who that is coming down the steps. I know who that is coming down the hall. Because he's able to recognize him, he sees him, and he says, he has appearance or likeness of the Son of Man, the one that he had walked with for three years. Now, wait a minute. It's been 60 years since he saw Jesus last. The last time he saw Jesus was on the Mount of Ascension. Whenever Jesus was taken up in the cloud, the angel said, he's going to come back the same way. It's been 60 years since he's seen Jesus. Now, could you imagine this, knowing somebody so intimately for three years, you haven't seen him for 60 years, and now he's coming back, and he has an appearance likened to the Son of Man. But what you see about him is not the suffering servant, and it's not this mild-mannered and sacrificial lamb. But what he sees, it's like the Son of Man, but what he's about to see is nothing that he had beheld, nothing that he'd ever seen before, whenever he had walked and served and ministered with Jesus. One of the interesting words about this, look in there in your Bible in verse 13. You need to circle this word, 
It says that Jesus walked in the middle of the lampstands. You need to circle that word middle. You need to circle the word middle. Where is Jesus pictured as walking? Now remember, this is a picture into glory. This is a picture of what Jesus is doing. It's a picture of the glorified Christ. Where does Jesus spend his time? Where does Jesus spend his time? Where is Jesus located? He is in the middle of the lampstands. You need to get that in your heart and your mind. That means that Jesus is intimately associated and in fellowship right in the middle of his churches. Not the universal church, but the local church. Now, what does that say? Well, for that person, and you've met them, you may even be one. I doubt you're here today if you are, but you've met that person. Man, I don't have to go to church. I can go out in the woods and worship God. I get on my bass boat and worship God. I can do anything. I don't really need to go to church. I love Jesus just like everybody loves Jesus. I don't need to go to church. Well, let me tell you something, brother, sister. You might not need to go to church, but if you want to hang around Jesus, he's walking in the middle of the lampstands. That's where he's spending his time. He's walking in the middle of his churches, which are his bride that he's coming to get one day, which are the things that he holds precious in his sight. And so if you're going to hang around Jesus and you're going to get an intimate word from Jesus and you're going to be in fellowship with Jesus like you ought to be, you're going to be at church. <laughs> I don't care what the name of, uh, on the door is. If it's a church that names the name of Christ, I'm going to show up there. When I'm on vacation, I don't take vacation from church. I go to church wherever there's a person who worships God and there's something on his door that says, I love Jesus. I'm going to be there. Why? Because Jesus walks in the middle of his churches and his lampstand. And if you're going to be a child of God that you want to be and you're going to know Jesus intimately, you're going to find yourself worshiping and walking in the midst with Jesus of his churches. The church of the living God is precious to Jesus. And it says he walks in the middle of those lampstands. Well, what else did he see? He didn't just see the seven lampstands. He saw the Son of Man who is walking in the midst of the lampstand. But then it describes his appearance. What does this Son of Man look like? Well, here's the first thing it says there in verse 13. It says, And he was clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet. Jesus is wearing a robe. He's wearing a robe. And it reaches to his feet. Matter of fact, it might have actually reached beyond his, his feet because if you write down Isaiah 6, you remember when, when Isaiah saw the, the picture of God in the temple? You remember what he said? And the train of the Lord filled the temple. Have you ever been to a wedding? Been to weddings? I know you have. That bride walks down, and what does she have following her? A train. How long have you seen a train? I've seen some long ones, but I've never seen a train that filled the temple. But whenever he saw God, he saw him in all of his glory, and he said, his train filled the temple. It says that when he sees Jesus, he has a robe, a robe. It is a garment of dignity. It's a garment of honor and dignity. He is not wearing the garb of a carpenter. He's not wearing the garb of a peasant. He's wearing a garment of dignity. And there were basically three groups of people in that day who would have worn this such robe of dignity or this garment of dignity. One of those would be the priest. 
the high priest, he would wear a robe. He would wear a robe that distinguished who he was and the dignity of his office. Somebody else who would wear a robe was a king. The regal robes of a king. When the king would come and sit on his throne, he would have the robes that said, he is royalty. He is to be honored. He is to be held in high esteem. And there was one other, one other group, and that was those who wore the judicial attire. The judges. Even today, whenever you go before a judge, the judge is not going to have on a suit or a tie. You know what the judge is going to have on? He's going to have on a robe that signifies his office or his position. Well, in that day, the judges would wear a robe. So what does it tell you about Jesus? Whenever he has this robe that reaches to his feet, he is one who is to be held in honor. He has dignity all around him, and he is a priest. He is a king, and my friend, he is a judge. When Jesus comes, there's no doubt about who he is. He's king, he's priest, and he is judge. In what he is wearing. Well, look what else it says about this attire that he has on. He says, a robe reaching to his feet, verse 13, and girded across his breast was a golden girdle. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Across his breast, there was this golden girdle. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's talk about that first of all. Many of you have heard or had preached or You've heard about it before. Whenever it says in the word of God that you were to gird up your loins. What a man would do whenever he wore a robe or his, his garment was long. In order to do work, he would take, and he had a girdle in a sense, and he, he would take his robe and he would tie it up around him like short pants. And he would tie that and it would be girded about him. It was girded about his loins to free up his legs so he could do work. And whenever they were girded about their loins, it signified work. There was a time when Jesus, we girded about his loins. He had work to do, but not now. (laughs) Not now. When he comes back, he is not girded about his loins because his work was finished. It was finished at the cross. Whenever Jesus finished that, he said, it is finished. All his work is done. He will never be girded for work again, but rather he is girded about his breast. That is a girdle of honor. It's a girdle of honor that says that he has come to a place of rest. That he doesn't have to work anymore. He's done what he has to do. And he now receives the honor. And that girdle was signified that it's around his breast. It's around his heart. What's the most precious thing about Jesus? His heart. His heart. Because it's out of his heart that he shows affection From his heart, he gives understanding. From his heart, he provides the love. And the most important thing about Jesus is that in his heart and around his heart, which is what we need most of all, he's done the work. He's finished the task. But you know what we need? We need a loving, kind Jesus who is there to minister to us as king and as priest and as judge. He's girded about his breast, around his heart, with a girdle of gold. Well, what else does it say? Look at verse 14. And his head, it says, and his head and his hair were white. They were white. 
not just white. They were white like wool or like snow. We ought to know what that's like. Uh, years ago in the south, when I lived further south, we just imagined what snow was. We saw the picture. When you live up here, you get the, the real stuff, don't you? And it says that, that whenever he, you saw his head and his face, they were white, white like snow. What's that symbolize? That symbolizes, first of all, an identification with the Ancient of Days. Write down your Bibles, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. We looked at that last week. Go back and look at it. Whenever Daniel saw the Ancient of Days, which is God in his glory, he saw his face and his hair that shine bright and white, which says that this one who's coming, who is king and judge and priest and likened to the Son of Man, he is the same as the Ancient of Days. He is God Almighty. Ancient of Days means God eternal. He is the eternal God. The Son of God is the eternal God. But being white, it represents the fact of purity. He is pure. He is holy. He has eternal dignity. It just points out this is God in all of his glory, holiness, and purity. And aren't we glad that God we serve is a holy God and Jesus is holy? What else does it say about Jesus? What it says in verse 14. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. When you looked in his eyes, it was like a flame of fire. That signifies the fact that his eyes would see all and know all. They saw all and they knew all. Or it's a picture of the omniscience of almighty God. This Jesus now is not the Jesus who walked here on this earth, who emptied himself of the attributes of God. See, when Jesus walked here, he had emptied himself of the attributes of God. God is omnipresent, but Jesus at one place at a time. God was omniscient, but Jesus said, there are some things I do not know. He was, God is all powerful, but Jesus only did what the father told him to do and reveal the power of God when God told him to do that. He was the son of man. He was to reveal what we're supposed to be like in relationship to him. But I'm here to tell you, when John sees him this time, he is omniscient, almighty God. He knows and sees all. He knows and sees all. Look what else it says in verse 15. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. Bronze or brass. Do you know what part of the temple, whenever the temple and all the instruments of the temple were, were laid out? And remember, the temple is, is a picture of, of salvation. It's a picture of what's going to happen and how salvation would be won. If you lay out the instruments and all the things of the temple from the Holy of Holies back to the bronze or brazen altar outside, and you see the candlestick and the showbread and the altar of incense, if you look at it from the outside in, it's a cross. You realize that? It's a cross. And the foot of that cross is the brazen or brass bronze altar. That's on the outer court. The outer court. Now, everything that happens on the outer court is about the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God upon sin or the iniquity of man. 
Whenever the altars were, the sacrifices were offered on the altar, they were offered on that altar in the outer court. And everything from the altar to the lavers to tongs to anything that was made, it was all made of bronze or brass. Not gold, bronze or brass, because the bronze or brass represented the fact of the judgment of God upon sin. The judgment of God upon sin. Get that in your mind. That's what bronze or brass represented. So when it says that you, he sees Jesus and his feet were like burnished bronze or brass, when it has been caused to glow, it is a picture of the judgment of God upon sin. The judgment of God upon sin. And it's a picture that Jesus, hold on a second, Jesus is going to tread under his feet all of sin. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. Glory to God. We're excited about that. You should be. You should be. You should be happy that one day he's going to put under his feet all of the sin. All your wretched, stinking sin that causes you problems in your life every day, that's going to be put under his feet and there will be sin no more. Why? Because he has bronze feet that will judge sin. Man, I got to coach y'all up. I'm going to start having a class on get excited. Amen. Praise God. 101 is going to be amen. 102 is going to be glory, and 103 is going to be hallelujah. You ought to be excited about something. I'm telling you. He's going to put sin away. I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait to know what, to know what I'm really like without sin. What about you? Well, John sees him coming, and John sees those bronze feet and the judgment of God is certain upon the sin of this world. And he can do that because he's the son of man, the lamb of God who paid for it. Look what else it says in verse 15. What he saw. And his voice, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Like the sound of many waters. I haven't had the opportunity. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I've heard if you go to Niagara Falls, it's kind of like a roar when you're sitting there because there's so much water that comes over. And whenever that water is moving, there's this roar. Well, that's what John described, that the voice of Jesus was like the sound of many waters. It's like the waters of Niagara Falls. My wife showed me something recently or this week that was on Facebook about this choir. I don't know if you all saw that where the choir makes the sound of a thunderstorm. Have you ever heard that? I've known that for 30 years. And what you do is you get a group of people together and you just rub their hands like this and, and you do it for a while. You have a sound and you start snapping their fingers and they start clapping and they start beating their, beating their feet. And you do that as a group and it sounds like a starting of a thunderstorm and it becomes a roar. How does that happen? Just because enough people rub their hands together, enough people snap their fingers, enough people clap, it makes a roar. Now, you can do that in this very room. You do this in the very room. But, but that's the fact of when everybody's together... It produces this roar. That's the way it is whenever a bunch of folks get together. You ever been to a, like a football game where there's 90,000 people? And before the game ever gets started, people are just talking. If you just listen, there's kind of a roar that goes on. Nobody's hollering. It's just a roar just in talk. But whenever they get in full voice, you can't hear yourself, right? 
Well, that's what the voice of Jesus is like. But you know why the voice of Jesus is like that? The voice of Jesus is like that because Jesus is focusing on the reality of the many messages. The many messages, the many prophets, the many preachers who are all speaking. Speaking what? The word of God. Speaking the message of God. And when all of those voices come together, it is one great voice. Think about that. Every prophet who has preached the word of God from the Old Testament through all the preachers to our generation and everybody preaching the word of God and preaching the word of God and and all of those voices coming together to preach the word of God, which is one voice because it is the word of God and it is the truth of God is what Jesus having to say. All of those voices form this great and loud and powerful voice like many waters. You know what excites me about that? (laughs) What excites me about that is my voice is just a little part of those great waters. You jealous? You jealous? You don't have to be. Because you have the same opportunity to proclaim Jesus where you are and to tell somebody about Jesus where you are and your voice joins the choir. And joins the sound of many waters. All of that is the voice of Jesus. See, I'm the voice of Jesus and you're the voice of Jesus. And we all spread out and we're doing it over time. But when all that comes together, this is what God sees from heaven. When God sees from heaven, it's all one voice, all at one time, talking about Jesus. That's the voice of many waters. Look what else he he. He was able to see, though. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, we don't have to wonder about the seven stars. Remember, again, seven is the the whole number. It means all. He holds all the stars. We don't have to wonder about the interpretation of stars. Go back to verse 20. In verse 20, he tells us, and the stars are the angels, are the messengers. Hold on a second are the pastors of the churches. You hear that? It's talking about angels. It's not talking about the guardian angel of the church. There's no guardian angel of the church. Guardian angel is going to watch over you. There's no angel. It's talking about the messenger of the church. And who who is God's messenger to the church? The pastors. That's God's messenger to the church. Now, do you hear what that said? What are you talking about? That makes you, that does make me feel good. Amen. Do you know where I am? Do you know where I am right now? Do you know where I am right now? In all eternity, this is where I am. I am in the right hand of Jesus. I'm in the right hand of Jesus. Why? Because I am the messenger or the pastor of this church. I told my wife this weekend, you know, there comes a time when I'm, I want to retire one day. I don't want to ever quit preaching, you know, but I, I want to retire from pastoring. But after reading this, I don't know if I do or not. It's a pretty good place to be in the right hand of, of, of Jesus, amen? He didn't say preachers were there. He said pastors were there in the right hand of Jesus. Now, what does that right hand represent? Well, the right hand represents authority. It represents command. It represents might. It represents strength. It represents power. It represents honor. represents everything. The right hand of Jesus represents all of those things. So the pastor comes... 
under the authority of Jesus, command of Jesus, with the skills and strength of Jesus, to carry on the work of Jesus. And what an intimate opportunity any pastor would have. What an unbelievable privilege that is, but also an unbelievable responsibility. If I'm in the hand of Jesus, that's a privilege, but that's a responsibility to the church that I pastor. W.A. Criswell said this, God holds up, holds out, and holds fast his servants, the pastor. Hear that? He holds up, holds out, and holds fast his pastors. Bless God for that. I'm thankful for that. Listen, what else it says he saw, though? 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. A sharp two-edged sword. What is this? What is the sharp two-edged sword? What does it say in Hebrews? In Hebrews, it's what? It's the Word of God. The Word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. So coming out of the mouth of Jesus is the power of the delivered message of Christ. There is power in the message of Christ. To be able to preach and to share that message. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the world will be judged by the word of God. Did you hear that? The world will be judged by the word of God. That's why you better read it. You better know it. You better understand it. Because that's what you're going to be judged by, the word of God. The powerful two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. What's the final thing that it says that, that he saw? Look at it in 16. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Have you ever tried to look at the sun in all of its glory? Have you ever ever tried to look at it? How long can you look up at the sun? I mean, you just can't. You know, it's too great. You may look for a moment and you got to turn away because it's so bright. Well, the pastors are stars. Now, I can look at stars all day long. Amen. I I look up there and they don't bother my eyes a bit. Now, they're glowing and there's light. But they'll bother my eyes. But when it comes to looking at Jesus, his glory, his glory is like the sun in all of its strength compared to the pastors who are stars in the sky. Jesus in his glory is far greater. He is the power, the glory, the triumph, the victory, the life, the light. It's all about Jesus. He is everything. That's what he saw. That's what he saw. But what did he do? What did this beloved disciple who knew Jesus closer than anybody, verse 17, what did he do? And when I saw him, I jumped up and gave him a high five. Did your paraphrase say that? Did it say that? When I saw him, I what? I fell at his feet as a dead man. I fell at his feet like a dead man. Why? Why would would John, who knew Jesus, had laid his head on the bosom of Jesus, why why would he have fallen at his feet like a dead man? Because the beloved disciple for the first time was looking upon the unveiled deity of Jesus. 
In the introduction, I told you, before this time, Jesus had all the glory of God held in a body. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, but the glory of God was in the body. It just jumped out every once in a while. During miracles, Mount of Transfiguration, it revealed itself. But, but he, it was held in his body. But now, he beholds his glory, that unveiled deity, in all of its brightness. He's looking in the face of the ancient of days, the face of the great living God himself. Could you imagine that? I mean, John is looking at God. He's looking at God. And he said, he falls at his feet as though dead. He don't only see the glory of God, but I'll tell you something. When you behold the glory of God, you become conscious, John did, of his unworthiness. The question is, how can a sinful mortal man look at God? And, and John's laid out dead. He just, he just laid out dead. There was life in him. What he had seen was too much for him to behold. Too much for him to grasp. He's not the only one, though. Take some of these examples down. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 8, he saw the vision of God. And whenever he saw the vision of God, he described it this way. Listen to what he says in Daniel 10, 8, about what he beheld. Write that down. So I was left alone and saw the great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. That's what he said his life was like. What was it whenever he was, when Isaiah saw it? He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am undone. I'm in trouble, because I beheld Almighty God. What about Exodus 20, 19, when the children of Israel saw the glory, Shekinah glory of God, and they told Moses, Moses, don't let us talk to God. You talk to God. We're going to go back over here on this other hill while you talk to God because they beheld the glory of God. Or, or what about in Abraham, when Abraham beheld God in Genesis 18, 27? Or what about Moses, when Moses said, God, I want to see your face, and God said, you cannot behold my face. If you see my face, you will die, but I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. And after I pass by, I will remove my hand and you shall see my back. But for you to see my face, you will die. Do you understand on the basis of that why John said, I fell at his feet as a dead man. For he had beheld for the very first time the glory of God. Of Jesus in all of its fullness. Final thing, what John felt. Don't miss this, please. Look what it says. Verse 17. I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me. What what did John feel? What did he feel? He felt Jesus. Reach down and touch him with his right hand. Wow. Do, do you know that whenever John had walked with, with Jesus all of those days, how many people he had seen Jesus touch with that right hand? The blind man? The lame man? The leprous man? 
the dead girl. He had walked with him and he had watched the power of his right hand touch and bring about a miracle. Here John lay dead like a dead man before the glory of the Son of God. And Jesus reaches down and he touches him. He touches him. And he stands John up. And John, I just believe in all my heart. I believe in all my heart. The first thought John had was this. This same glorious son of man is my Jesus. He's my Jesus. Because I've seen him do it so many other times. To bring life out of death. And he's brought life to me. When there was no way I could live beholding the glory of Christ. Well, that's what he saw. That's what he did and that's what he felt. Next week we'll get to see or listen to what he heard. What do you hear? Don't miss that. I mean... Jesus tells you, he takes the whole word of God, just about two verses. He puts the whole word of God together about who he is, what he came to do, and what this is all about. What this is all about. But could I ask you, friend, have you been touched by Jesus? I have. I've been touched by Jesus. As a little boy, I was a lost sinner, and Jesus came and touched me, and he forgave me. Have you been touched by Jesus? Do you know him as... As the Son of God, do you know Him as Savior and Lord? I pray that you do. If you don't, you need to give your heart to Jesus today. You need to get to know Jesus. He's the greatest friend you'll ever have and the only hope that you'll ever have of salvation. The only one who's going to tread upon your sin. The only one who's the high priest and the king and the judge. Only one. And you need to know Him. You've never given your heart to Jesus today. You ought to walk down, if not run down here and say, I want to give my heart to Jesus. Just tell me how. Tell me what I've got to do to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Tell me what I've got to do to know him in this day, the day of grace, before I will behold him as John beheld him. What do I have to do? What do I have to know? Please tell me. You come. I'll be happy to tell you what you have to do. Child of God, I hope you've seen Jesus in a fresh new way. Hope you realize who he is and who it is that you serve and that he has every right to be Lord over your life. Every right to tell you what to do, tell you when to do it. He should be Lord over your life. And your one answer ought to be yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, whatever you want. You come, make that commitment. If you're missing that, you need to come make that commitment. If you want to join our fellowship, we welcome you. We'd love to have you. You come. Make that commitment, Jesus, which you would welcome you into our fellowship. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world.
we can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.